Hello, it's Hilary Johnson, your Acid podcast host. Welcome to season two of the all new Acid Research to Practice podcast. Today, we will hear about supported decision making for people who do not use speech to communicate and may have a severe or profound intellectual disability. Later in the episode, we will hear from Gloria and Michael, who practice supported decision making. But before we hear from them, let's hear a bit from Dr. Joe Watson. I'm a lecturer at Deakin and I teach in the postgrad courses in um, disability and inclusion with Dr. Patsy Frawley and I do some research at Deakin as well. We visited Dr. Joe and spoke to her about her research and why it's important. There's a group of people, people who may, many people might call having a severe or a profound intellectual disability, people who communicate non-conventionally, perhaps unintentionally, that in my opinion and in many people's minds have been left out of lots of the self-determination movements of the last four or five decades. And for me, when we signed the convention in 2008, when Australia signed the convention and ratified the convention... That is, the landmark United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability. I got pretty excited about this one little article in the convention, Article 12, which said that everyone has a right to self-determination. Everyone has a right to autonomy. And I looked at that and I thought, how though? How? How can we hear the voices? How can we truly hear the voices of everyone? Many people who will be listening to this podcast know people who it's very difficult to engage with. It's very difficult to hear their will and preference. So that's where my interest in this research started. So where do we begin when thinking about supporting people who have a severe or profound intellectual disability and use unconventional communication? Dr. Joe starts by getting us to rethink how we understand autonomy. I'd like to start with this concept of autonomy before I launch into this idea of supported decision making because I think it sets the stage. Us as humans, we are very wedded to this idea of autonomy and it's something that we have we've valued really since antiquity. It's something that we have linked to this idea of personhood and I think that concept of personhood is really very important. We have many renowned scholars, thinkers, who really believe that our personhood is very much linked to our individual autonomy. Now, where does that link to supported decision-making? Why do we care about this background? The reason is, is because Article 12 of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Article 12 is something of a game-changer. It states that people with disabilities have the right to equal recognition before the law. That all people with disabilities have capacity to make their own decisions and have them respected by the law and others. And that all people have the right to support to make their own decisions. That is the article that really focuses on supported decision-making. It focuses on this idea of a universal right to autonomy. That all of us regardless of our intellectual ability, 
regardless of who we are, we all have the human right to autonomy. So I think that that is one of the crucial issues with supported decision-making. And it's something that I've found in my research that this concept of supported decision-making hasn't always been embraced by everyone because there is a perception that there is a group of people who can't even be supported to make decisions. Now, scholars like Peter Singer would say that there is a group of people who can't exercise their autonomy. So therefore, they shouldn't be afforded the rights that are enshrined in treaties like the UNCRPD or the United Nations. From my practice and research experience tells me that that's because of their communication. The perception that many people have that people who don't communicate formally or in a very sophisticated way, symbolically, are not communicating. There's a perception that unless you are able to communicate in an intentional way or a purposeful way, you aren't able to communicate. And at the center of making a decision or making a choice is communication. We need to be able to express ourselves. We need to be able to express our will and preference to have our decisions heard and therefore our autonomy realized. The jury's out on what Article 12 actually means, but most people believe, and I believe, that the purpose of Article 12 is to abolish substituted decision-making across the globe. So everybody, regardless of the way they communicate or their disability, has the right to make decisions for themselves. But what is supported decision-making? Gloria and Michael live and breathe supported decision-making. Let's hear a bit about how they do it. Hello, my name is Gloria and I was the carer of Michael from when he was 10 until he was 18 and he lived in a family group home with me. Michael did have some speech when he first arrived but he now chooses not to speak. So this is how we make decisions together. Michael, do you remember when you went to a disco and you asked Alison for a dance. Do you remember how you did it? You went like that to her, didn't you? And you you got her you got her to get up. Michael is nodding, he remembers he remembers asking um Alison for a dance at the disco and she got up and they danced together. One thing that we do ask him to decide on is what he would like to eat and drink. Now, to do that, I would ask him, would he like coffee or would he like Coca-Cola? And this would be at a shop when we're out shopping, and then sometimes he'll, he won't reply. So I do the Coke and the coffee, and that's Coke and that's coffee, and then he points to my hands. One hand will be clenched and the other one will be open, and then he that's why he tells me his preference for a drink. If we are out and I want to take him out for a meal, I say, you lead the way, Michael, and show me where you want to go. And then I follow him and he takes me to where he wants to eat, usually Italian. Dr Joe wanted to explore experiences like Michael's and Gloria's through her research. There is some schools of thought that there's, you know, there is some frameworks and within our own guardianship legislation in most jurisdictions in Australia, we have a continuum of decision-making support. At one end is guardianship. 
And actually that's not considered decision-making support, that's called substituted decision-making. That's where someone's right to legal capacity or their right to personhood, which is what's reflected in Article 12, is taken away. On the other end of the continuum is just a little bit of support. So it might be how many of us make decisions, lots of different degrees of support. If we are talking about supporting someone to make a decision, it really needs to be that person's voice. We really need to be able to hear that person's will and preference. And if it's not, that's where we talk about substituted decision-making or guardianship. Now, many people would consider the work that I'm doing perhaps substituted decision-making. On the surface, it might look like that. But an argument could be made that it's very different to what would happen within a guardianship context. Gloria told us how she knows Michael is communicating his preferences and how he feels about the outcome. Michael went went up to people and beckoned to them to come so that he could have a dance. And then once he got up on the floor, he was very happy and and smiling. He doesn't like crowds and he gets frightened, but he likes riding on public transport. I've only got to ask him, Michael, would you like a ride on the train? Yes, he's nodding yes and, and making a verbal noise. Dr Joe wanted to look at Article 12, or the right to make decisions about one's own life, and have them respected by others, could become a reality for people with severe intellectual disability and people who communicate differently to most people in the community. I really wanted to answer that question. Is supported decision-making something that might finally give us a vehicle to hear the voices of this very rarely heard group? And if so, how? So how can we articulate this relatively new concept, this new idea that has arisen from the UNCRPD? How can we massage it? How can we work with it to include this group? So I developed a framework, uh, which I call the Supported Decision-Making Framework, and I used it with support workers, guided support workers through a process of supporting someone to make a decision. Can you just tell me a little bit about how the um, framework got started, how it came yeah. about? Well, it, it was developed by myself and a wonderful woman called Rhonda Joseph, who has done a lot of work with people with this level of support needs. And we were concerned that there wasn't anything that really grouped a lot of the practices that seem to work with this group of people to hear their preference. So we grouped some of these practices together and we came up with a decision-making framework, which we then used as a lens to look at, to explore how this group of people were supported to make decisions. With that, we were able to ask the question, what does supportive decision-making look like for this group? What are the roles of supported decision-making in this dynamic? And what can we do to enhance a person's will and preference being heard? So what does supported decision-making look like for someone who communicates unconventionally? Dr Joe? It would be useful to tell you about one young man that we worked with. So what we did, we'd have, Rhonda and I had three months, which with each case study or with each 
circle of support. So we had a person with an intellectual disability and then people who knew them well. So Saturday mornings, people were very clear that it was a difficult time for him. He um, appeared to be expressing to many of us and we were all in agreement that, that he was fairly bored. So he would spend a lot of time finding a sharp piece of wood, whether that be a you know, door frame, and hitting his head on that. Um, we, after a lot of discussion, we used video of that communication and we decided that it would be worth us exploring some options about what he got up to on the weekend. So we made a list of the things that we thought, based on what we knew about him, my role was really as a facilitator. We made a list of the things that we thought he might enjoy, being in fast cars, really loves, you know, speeding down the highway and, you know, so much so he'll put his head out the car window. He seemed to like wind on his face. When we experimented with, with a fan in his face, we could see that that was something that he enjoyed. So one of the things that we explored was we went to Luna Park and he tried a ride. Now in his 40 years, he'd never been on a ride and we videoed that ride. We videoed that. We sat down on the park bench next to, there was myself and a support worker and his mother and we watched that video and we made a decision together based on that video that we thought he really enjoyed that ride because I'd known him for quite a few years and I'd never seen the change in expression. He, he really seemed to enjoy it and the three of us agreed. So we went and we supported him to make a decision to buy another ticket on the ride. But it was very clear to us that after the 10th ride that day, <laughs> it wasn't any of us guiding who bought that ticket. Through his will and preference, and he certainly wasn't using speech and language, he was using some very informal communication to tell us that he'd like another ride. So the following weekend, we did the same thing. And it was very clear that that is something that he enjoys doing on a Saturday. And so I think that that's a really good example of how we can take someone's very subtle and, and very subtle expressions of will and preference and then building those up into a very clear decision about how he spent his money. It's that the time that we spent together as a circle really watching those videos was really important and people, even his mother, learnt a lot from that. One of the things that I think she learnt was that it wasn't all on her. She wasn't the only person in his life who knew his will and preference, but there were actually other people in his life that were able to understand that and we could come to a consensus together. And that is one key element of supported decision making that I think is often overlooked when it is applied within a legal context that the relational aspect of decision-making support. That when I think about how I make decisions, I not only ask my partner, but I ask my neighbor, I ask lots of people for support. And I gather lots of different bits of information. And that's a concept called relational autonomy. So we are all autonomous within the context of a social construct. 
and that needs to be applied for the people that we support as well and I think for too long we have different benchmarks for people with cognitive disability when it comes to decision making capacity. Relational autonomy, that means good close relationships with others are vital to supported decision making. Here is Dr Jo. At my research what we found was that there were clear elements of that relationship that were really important. It came down to three factors. Firstly, that person needed to have their communication acknowledged. And then that communication needed to be interpreted. And the final part of that was acting on that, on what they were telling us. So those were the three so things. Michael has made a lot of major decisions and communicated them to his supporters. Gloria tells us about decisions Michael made around work and retirement. Initially, when Michael came to live, he went to a day placement uh, where he was learning living skills. And he'd been going for about two or three years. And the people didn't understand that because he didn't talk, he used to spend a lot of time on his own and not want to join in with the other group. They initiated one day for a week for him to go to a sheltered workshop and he went over there a few times with one of the ladies that lives with him and he found that he could get over there by the bus. So instead of getting off at day placement, he would head off to the sheltered workshop. <laughs> so they decided they would keep him on as a volunteer. So he went there for several years. But then later on, he started working at workshop where he actually got paid a little bit of money. And that was quite good for a while until he got to about 40 and he decided that he no longer wanted to work anymore. So his way of telling people that he'd made a decision that he didn't want to do that anymore was to go and hide in the toilet or go to the kitchen and make cups of coffee. So he's getting paid for doing very little. So we decided then that we would get him into another program where he did things he enjoyed doing instead of going to work. <laughs> Michael's supporters were attuned to his communications about his work even though it wasn't communicated through words. They were able to interpret his communications and, as a group, take action to make his will and preference a reality. The interpretation part needed to be done collaboratively. There's more checks and balances in place when we do things in a collaborative way. What made a supporter more likely to be responsive, so more likely to be able to participate in those three tasks, was their perceived relational closeness to the person that they supported. The other thing was if they enjoyed the person's company, they were more likely to be responsive. Part of that was this belief that they were able to communicate, even if they were communicating in an unintentional way, and a belief that they had decision-making capacity. Mm. The other aspect, and I think this is a really important one, and it's a really nice one that we can all do every day, is acknowledging someone beyond their disability. So where people saw those they supported beyond their disability, they were more likely to respond to them. So what do I mean by that? Um, a man called Colbine Ling came up with um, an approach many, many years ago, and I, I um, I'm not sure if his work is published around this, but he presented it at a conference and I've taken that. The idea is that you ask people who know someone well or someone who supports them. If John had complete control over his life, 
What car would he drive? What music would he listen to? What clothes would he wear? What food would he eat? And it's amazing the responses and the narratives that we got from those mm. questions. Things like, oh, he'd be living in the Yarra Valley drinking lovely wine and eating good cheese. He'd be listening to Nirvana on the bus radio. So there was a lot of that. And then we would ask, why isn't he listening to Nirvana <laughs> on, the, on the bus radio? Why isn't he living in the Yarra Valley drinking wine? <laughs> and eating cheese. And eating cheese. Why is he wearing those tracksuit pants? If you think he would be a stylish dresser. So that was a really important shift for many people to think mm. very differently about the person they supported. And where they were able to do that, they became more responsive to their communication as well or their expression of will and preference. Gloria and Michael have known each other for a long time. Michael moved into a family group home run by Gloria when he was a child. That means there's a lot of shared history and knowledge to help with interpreting Michael's will and preference. But what about other workers who might not know him so well? How do Michael and the people who care about him make sure new workers know his likes and dislikes? It's very important for Michael to be with people who understand him and support him. Most of the people who are working with Michael at the moment would be from placements and through NDIS and through where he lives and they all understand Michael and they've done a lot of visual objects around the house like when he went to the NASA space unit, there's him with his suit on with all the other people in the house. They have a, a placemat made on the table with a photo of Michael when he was young and all the things around it that he likes to do in picture form. His basketball, his running, his friends, me, are all on, the, on that table mat. So when he sits down at night, that table mat is on the table in front of him. But things get complicated in practice. Dr Joe told us about some of the barriers to developing strong personal relationships like this. I think that there needs to be a very clear acknowledgement that this is a complex and a time-consuming process. It's not necessarily resource-intensive, except that it's time-consuming. So I think that there needs to be some acknowledgement of that. There also needs to be some acknowledgement that Everyone is able to express will and preference, but we need to work together to hear that will and preference and then build those into decisions. The one other thing that was really important were the barriers that were put in place around developing relational closeness for this group of people. Service providers are changing somewhat, but we had a lot of narrative and a lot of qualitative data where service providers would say, it's not okay for you to see him on the weekend. It's not okay for you to have a relationship outside of your role. It's not okay for you to be his friend. All over Australia, we have some real issues around abuse. And I think that we need to be very, very careful when we're talking about developing close relationships with people we support. However, on the other hand, we know that close relationships are really important to people for all kinds of reasons. But specifically for my research, it's around being able to express your will and preference, be responded to, therefore have your autonomy realized. And I think it's time that we be more genuine and more authentic about 
these relationships. I think relationships are likely to happen behind closed doors if services put barriers on people's relationships that they have with those they support. Dr Joe's research points to the need for changes to our legislation in Australia. In terms of legislators, I think there needs to be an increased awareness of supported decision-making being a very real alternative to things like guardianship. Maybe not to replace guardianship, but being a really valuable augmentation to guardianship. So that would mean legislators and policy makers thinking about the principles of Article 12, that we all have the right to make decisions with support from people who know and love us, and that there are ways of hearing people's will and preference. This research offers some practical ways for friends, workers, family members and other supporters in the lives of people with intellectual disability who might communicate in unconventional ways. So there's some very clear strategies that service providers and support staff and families, anyone who is supporting someone with an intellectual disability, could use to really hear that will and preference. And can you just remind us of those strategies? Yes. So it's about being responsive to that person, acknowledging that someone is communicating, collaboratively interpreting and using things like video really very very useful we found that really useful and acting on that person's will and preference and doing it all collaboratively very very important um what would be your next big decision of what you would like to do would you like to eat a chocolate off that plate he's nodding yes he would okay would you like that chocolate well all right then you can take it He's reaching over to take it. Would you prefer the biscuit? Yeah, or the chocolate. Okay, he's pointing at the biscuit. So I have to I have to open the packet for him. Michael has now chosen his biscuit and we're putting the packet back. If you would like to find out more about Dr Joe Watson's research, we will link to some great resources in the show notes. Dr Joe also recently wrote an article for Intellectual Disability Australasia for ACID. We will link to that too. Thank you so much for joining us for the first episode of Season 2. You can find the ACID Research to Practice podcast wherever you source your podcasts. This episode was produced by Sophia Tipping, Hilary Johnson and Buffy Gorilla. Marketing support was done by Ben Pawson. Thank you to Dr Jo Watson for sharing her research with us and to Gloria and Michael for sharing their stories. And a big thank you to Living with Disability Research Centre at La Trobe University. Keep up to date with all things ACID on Twitter via the handle at ACID underscore limited, on Facebook via ACID .asn.au Or better still, become a member and enjoy access to a number of publications and benefits. Just go to our website acid.asn.au